to it. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time together. We ask you, Lord, that you humble us and give us clarity uh, to receive your word. And I ask, Lord, that you, you move through me and uh, do that miracle that is preaching uh, that we can receive from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'll just read Matthew 28, 18 through 20, uh, because that's been kind of an anchor for us for a while. But the passage I want you to turn to is 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. So Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is important to us because it is the Great Commission. We've been talking about that for a number of weeks, the commandment that Christ gave us to go into the world and to make disciples. This is basically the, the reason that we exist as Christians in the world is to go and make other Christians. And then our anchor text for this morning is 2 Timothy 2 and 10. Paul says, therefore, and this will be a familiar text to you, we alluded to it the last time that we were together, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So, most of you know, back in April of last year, I had a stroke. It was a fun experience. <laughs> they kept telling me, you're too young for this. And I kept thinking, well, thank you for that encouragement. I recovered very quickly from that stroke. Um, I didn't have any lasting effects that I know of. Uh, the neurologist said it was a very close call. They kept telling me that I was lucky. I was lucky that the blood clot was not any bigger. I was lucky that it wasn't in a different part of my brain. I was lucky that I was able to recover so quickly. Um, they were astonished that I didn't have any, any paralysis in my face or in my hands or in any other part of my body, that my speech wasn't slurred. I was able to smile properly. Um, I didn't have any kind of trouble walking or anything like that. And all that was in less than 24 hours, just full, complete physical recovery. Everything was normal, well, as, as, you know, as normal as, as could be for for me, it was a close call, right? Yes, praise God, absolutely, praise God. But you know, it could have been so much worse. It really could have been. In fact, they kept harping on that. They kept, they kept telling me that. That's what they kept, they always want to give you the bad news, um, which I guess is okay. You know, they, they want you to know how, how lucky you are. They want you to know how bad it could have been to scare you into better behavior. I, I don't know what the, I don't know why. But they always want to give you the bad news. They tell me that the, the vast majority of their patients who have strokes have it far worse than what I experienced. A lot of them forget how to breathe. In fact, uh, the floor that I was on and the ward that I was in, there were patients hooked up to breathing machines because their body forgot how to, how to move the muscles to, to breathe. So they had to have a machine force them 
to breathe. They forget how to form words so they can't talk. They have to relearn how to form words. I mean, all kinds of debilitating and life-changing issues that come from, from having a stroke, something that, that I went through, these people go through, and it radically alters the way that they, they live and experience life, a personality changes that they go through, just all kinds of weird, devastating things that happen to people. So I, I really had a close call, a close call. You know what that'll do for you? You know what a close call will do for you? Do you know what it does to your perspective to have a, a little tango with, with danger? A little dance with, with danger? It'll cause you to, to think about some things in your life, right? It'll cause you to take stock and look back on your life through a, a little bit of a different lens and maybe it might make you wonder my God what have I done with the time what have I done with the years that you've given me you know there, there's so much that you've given me and what have I what have I done with it there's so much that's still left to be done have I done enough for your kingdom did I make it count did I did I make an iota of difference. I've left so much on the drawing board. Amen. There's so much, too many projects that are still in the design phase. What did I do with all that time? Did I make any of it count? You know? And then, after you're done looking back on all the years that you've been, been given, when you've, you have this little... Dance with danger after you're done looking back through that lens. You start looking forward to the future because now you've got a, a new appreciation for the, the fact that you know, time is precious and time is fleeting. And, you know, we're not promised even the next breath. And now you say, Lord, I've I got to get to work. I got, I got so much to do and, and so little time to do it, so I want you to show me what you, you want me to do. So why don't you just go ahead and you just strip away everything that needs to be stripped away. Take away all every, everything that needs to be taken away. Just remove all the distractions because I just, I just want it to count. I count it all as lost. Take away everything that needs to be taken away. Take me through whatever you've got to take me through. I don't mind if i got to struggle a little bit. I just... I want to live on purpose. I'm done just coasting by. I'm done just, just floating around. I want to live on purpose. I want to build your kingdom. I want to bring people to Jesus Christ. I want to make it count. Right? A little dance with danger will do that for you. Close calls can kind of shift perspectives. You know what I'm saying? And I'm, I don't think I'm, a, I'm alone in... In that experience, I know I'm not the only person that's ever had a close call or a perspective shifting, perspective changing experience. You don't have to go to the hospital to have a, uh, an experience like that. You don't have to have an encounter with, with death to have an experience like that. There are, are moments in everybody's life that causes them to, to stop and, and take stock and ask the question, has any of it mattered? And, and what am I going to do going forward to make sure that it, it matters? 
You know, you may be looking at, at somebody else's life and something that some, somebody else goes through may cause you to stop and take stock. You may be reading a book and a story in a book makes you think, man, the events of last week will make you stop and think, man. This is something everyone goes through at some point. Some people go through it very early in their life. Some people go through it at multiple stages in their life. Some people very late in their life. There are people who get to this in the final stages, the last days of their life, and they're thinking, my God, what have I done with the time that you gave me? Well, I'm here to tell you, folks. I'm here to tell you. With as much certainty as I can muster, I'm here to tell you it doesn't matter what situation that you're in. It doesn't matter what state you find yourself in, what stage that you find yourself in. It is never too late. It's never too late to make a difference. It's never too late to make it count. It's never too late to live your life on purpose. And we see this wonderful truth both by way of example and by way of instruction from the Apostle Paul. According to most scholars, the text that we have, 2 Timothy, this letter is Paul's final letter. It's the last one that he wrote. Now, he may have written others. We just, we just don't know about it. There's no mention of any other letters by him, and there's no record that we have of any other letters. So as far as we know, this is the last one. And you can't, you just, you just can't read it. I mean, not, not in order to fully get it. I mean, really get what Paul is pouring in to this letter. You, you have to know the circumstances around it. You got to know that. You got to know that this, this is the last one. You have to know that this is at the end of Paul's life. He's, I mean, he's an old man, and this is the very end, and it's the very end of a very difficult life. Let me, let me just pause there for a minute because I, I want to give you a glimpse of, of that difficult life from, from Paul's own words, just how difficult it was. He, he, he told us in, in 2 Corinthians, he, he wrote this about 12 years before he wrote 2 Timothy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28, he was trying to defend his apostleship. And he wrote to them and he told them, he said, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardships, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and exposure, in cold and exposure. And apart from all the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, every single one of those is tremendous pressure that would take most of us to the brink of collapse. Forget having to endure all of it. Aren't our lives so easy? I just want you to look at the first one, the very first one, and really consider the consequences of that one. Just think about it. Verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. 
Now that sounds familiar. 39 lashes. Where have we seen that before? That's the same beating that Jesus received before he went to the cross. It's the same scourge with the same kind of whip, the cat of nine tails. That's the one that had the, the bits and pieces of sharp material, the shards of, of sharp shells, the, the shards of sharp pieces woven into the ends of it. So that when they whipped you with it, it lacerated the back with deep cuts and it would cut deeply into the flesh. It would open your back, cut deeply into the muscle and the sinew. Imagine it. Just put yourself in the time. Just consider the times that this is happening. There's no medicine. There's no antibiotics. There's no painkillers. Not like we have today. Oh, they had herbs. They didn't have hydrocodone. They didn't have morphine. They didn't have antibiotics. And when the body finally fights off the infections after probably months of being ill and pus and all that, when it finally fights off the infections and, and begins to heal, the tissue just heals the way it heals. It just goes back the way it goes back. It's not right. It doesn't go back correctly. It goes back the way it goes back. So it's all twisted and, and there's scar tissue. It's all knotted up. And twisted and, you know, there's no position that Paul can find himself to get in, whether he's sitting or standing or laying down. There's no, there's no position that is comfortable for him because it's all tight and twisted. He's in constant pain. And that's the first time. And then it happens again. And again. And again. And again. And that's just what he dealt with from the Jews. His people. His brothers. And that's just the first sentence. That's verse 24. Paul had a very... Very difficult life. And what's remarkable is it was a very easy life before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Amen. Amen. What's even more remarkable is, than that is that for all that torture and all that pain and all that torment, for all the trouble and hardships that he describes, not one time did Paul say, I wish I never met that man. No, in fact, what he did say was that I count it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing him. I count it all as being worth it because I know him. Knowing him is worth all of that. Isn't that remarkable? And so now Paul is at the end of his life. He's in pain and he's in prison and he's been sentenced to death. Most of his friends have abandoned him. These are his partners in ministry. These are the ones that have gone town to town with him in Asia. These are the church planters with him, the ones that, that shouted hallelujah with him, the ones that, that prayed with him, and they've all abandoned him for fear of their own lives. Because, you see, Paul is now an enemy of the state. It's dangerous to be associated with him. And so they've distanced themselves from him. So he is alone. And more than being alone, he is abandoned, imprisoned, Abandoned and alone. And he's waiting. And he's counting the days until the executioner comes. 
and he's aged, and he's in pain, and the clock is ticking. But as I began the message, talking about these close calls that we have, these perspective-shifting close calls that we have, this is not one of those instances for Paul. Paul is no stranger to crisis. He's no stranger to close calls. He's not wondering, have I done enough for you, Lord? You can tell that if you read down a little bit further in 2 Timothy in chapter 4, where he says, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He said, I've already given all I've got to give. I've already laid it all on the table. There's, there's no reserve left in the tank, and the time has come for my departure. Verse 7, he says, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and the righteous judge will give it to me. It's going to reward me on that day. No, Paul isn't having a crisis. He's not in the middle of a crisis. Paul isn't having a life-changing shift of perspective here. He, he did that on the road to Damascus. What Paul is doing is he's pouring everything he's got into Timothy. He's got a sense of urgency here, right here at the very end. He's pouring it all out for Timothy. Paul's got a, an urgency because time is short. It's limited, and there's so much left to do. There's a lot yet to say. There's so much left to teach. There's so much left to impart, and there's so very little time to do it. So I've got to choose my words wisely. I've got to choose the lessons carefully. I've got to choose the message carefully. I've got to decide of everything I can teach him, of everything I can impart to him, what's the most critical? What's the most critical lessons that I can give him? And listen, in this epistle, there are some brilliant Brilliant lessons that Paul teaches. But one of the things that he is screaming out to Timothy and to all of us from this lesson is, Timothy, live on purpose. Now, I may be a little bit late in the game in coming to this, but I've I've got to address this before I continue. I need you to understand that when Paul is talking to Timothy, he's talking to all of us. Okay. In, in chapter 1, he refers to Timothy as my child. Um, and then in 1 Timothy, in, in the ver- first verse, he calls Timothy my child in the faith. The only way that Timothy, Timothy is not related to Paul. The only way that Timothy is, is Paul's child is in the faith. And he is Paul's child in the faith because he believes the teaching of Jesus Christ that Paul has delivered to him. So in that regard, we are all descendants of Paul in the faith, right? Timothy is Paul's child because he believed the gospel that Paul taught him. Well, guess what? So do we. We all believe the gospel that Paul teaches. So by that logic, we are all the great, 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 you know, however many greats, grandchildren of the apostle Paul. So uh, when Paul addresses Timothy by that logic, guess what? He's addressing us. So when Paul says, you know, to Timothy, that's not your cue to shut the book and tune me out because, well, my name's not Timothy. He's talking to all of us. He's talking to his descendants in the faith. And there's one more thing that I have to point out here in this regard. There are specific things in Paul's letters to Timothy that regard pastors and preachers, okay? And the tendency for us to do is to say, well, that doesn't regard me because I'm not a pastor or uh, a preacher. Well, maybe not, and maybe so. We are all priests unto God. 
We are all called to be disciple makers. That was the first passage that we read. Go and make disciples. We've been on that one for 12 weeks. If you haven't gotten that in your noggin, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. We are all ministers in some way. So the instructions to pastors and, and preachers, they may not have the same force for you that they would have to someone who is called to pulpit ministry, for example, but they do still apply. Paul clearly tells Timothy in this very letter in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, he says, All Scripture, you know this one, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17 is where I want to hang my, make my point here. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The man of God. That's not reserved for preachers. That's for everybody. All Scripture is profitable for you to make you equipped for every good work. Amen. All of it is good for you. Amen. All right? So now that I've got that out of the way, he ain't just talking to Timothy. He's talking to all y'all. That's Northeast Texan. Okay. <laughs> With that as the backdrop, <laughs> let's finally dig into my text. <sighs> okay. A little bit long introduction. Go back to chapter 2, and let's read verses 1 through 10. So Paul has just told Timothy in the previous verses that everyone in Asia has turned away from him. They've abandoned him, which makes what he has to say next all the more urgent. It carries that much more weight. He says, they've all left me, Timothy. Everybody in Asia has left me. So then he says in verse 1, you then... That means this is a direct result of what I just said before. In that case, you, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, share in the suffering, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he completes or competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, there are three imperatives. An imperative is an instruction, or you, you might call it a commandment. It's usually a verb, uh, something that we must do. There are three imperatives in this first uh, section of verses. And on the other side of that, we have participles. In very simple terms, participles tend to be how we carry out the commandments or in what way we're supposed to do the thing that we are told to do. Now, there's some more nuance to it than that, but that's just a very simple way of looking at it. I'll give you a scripture example that you ought to be familiar with. We read it this morning. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Make, make disciples, that's the imperative. Baptizing and teaching, that's the participle. It tells us how to go about doing the commandment. Okay? 
So here in 2 Timothy, we have some imperatives, we have some instructions, and then we also have some descriptions. We see the imperatives in verses 1 through 3, and some descriptions in verses 4 through 6. Verses 1, right off the bat, Paul gives us, uh, Paul tells Timothy, and by extension he tells all of us, he says to be strengthened. That's an instruction. That's an imperative. All right? This is a, a, an instruction for us. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This literally means to be enabled, to be made capable. And we cannot just read past this. This is very important. What I want you to understand about this, this is something that you'll miss if you just, if you just read past it. You'll miss it if you just read it. You, you have to think about it. Think it through. This is a passive verb. What that means is that Paul, when Paul says be strengthened, he's not telling us to strengthen ourselves. Okay, We are not the actor here. We are the, the person that is being acted upon. Okay, We're the one who's being acted upon. He said be strengthened by, not strengthen yourself in. Be strengthened by. Be strengthened by what? By the grace that is in Jesus Christ. So, you are to allow the grace that is free and abundant and amazing in Jesus Christ to strengthen you. It's passive. We, are, we don't strengthen ourselves. We must be strengthened. We are the passive recipient of strengthening. Does that make sense? Okay. There are... I've got to to move quickly. There are three phases, if you will, as I see it, three phases of being, allowing ourselves to be strengthened in the grace of Jesus Christ. And I mean mean strengthened as Paul is is wanting us to be strengthened. Strengthened where we're, we're in it to win it. Strengthened where we won't be shaken. Number one is that we must be grateful for the grace of Christ. We must be grateful. Or to be strengthened, we must be grateful for the grace of Christ. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for the receiving of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Gratitude is the natural outflow of grace, church. It's what, it just happens when grace happens. We are, we're thankful for it. Receiving grace is receiving something that's beneficial that we don't deserve. Unfortunately, there are some people that are just ungrateful people. You ever met those people? They're just never thankful for nothing. And they deserve everything. They're never thankful. They never find gratitude for anything. And they never find gratitude in the grace of Christ. And because of that, they have no strength in the grace of Christ. They have no strength in Christ. And what you know what happens? Their faith is weak. When adversity hits, they're the first to fall because there's no joy in them. Ungrateful people are unhappy people. You ever, you ever notice that? There's no joy in them. And the joy of the Lord is my... Oh, isn't that funny how that works? Right? So you have to, fi- you have to be grateful for the grace of Christ in order to be strengthened by the grace of Christ. We must be grateful for what Christ has done for us. Or you'll topple like a house of cards. In the day of adversity, your faith will be weak and you will fall. Number two, you must be secured in the grace of Christ. 
John 6, 37, this is Jesus talking. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, you need assurance in your soul that you are standing on a solid foundation. You need that. You need to know that Christ loves you and that you are secured in his hand and that what you are standing on is a solid rock and that when you step out in faith, you're not walking on weak, sandy ground. You need to know that. If you build on anything else, your house will fail. But if you build on the solid foundation of Christ, you will be able to stand strong. And when the enemy comes in, and he will, when he comes in and tries to cast doubt in your mind about your salvation, when he tries to cast doubt in your mind about whether or not you're worthy to be saved, guess what? You're not worthy to be saved. That's what grace is all about. It's a free gift. But when he tries to cast doubt in your mind about all that, you need to go to the Scriptures to get assurance for your salvation. You cannot be strengthened on shaky ground. You must have security and the grace of Christ in order to be strengthened by the grace of Christ. And thirdly, if you are grateful for the grace of Christ and you are secured in the grace of Christ, then you are able to be driven, driven by the grace of Christ. And this is where we hope to be. This is where we hope to be, driven by the grace of Christ. Philippians 3.14, you know this one. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. I like the way the King James puts it. That's how I grew up with it. I just like the way it sounds. I press toward the call for the, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm driven by grace. I'm driven by it. That's what moves me. That's what makes me press. That's what draws me forward and and keeps me going. That's what allows me to see others with the same grace that Christ has shown me. And I'm strengthened by that. Not only am I made stronger by His grace, but you know what? I'm enabled by His grace. I'm emboldened by His grace. I'm emboldened by grace to make things happen. I'm emboldened by grace to step out in in faith because I'm strengthened. I'm strengthened. You want to live life on purpose? You want, to, you want to make it count? You want to make sure that when you suffer, you suffer like a Savior for the sake of others? Then be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. That person, that person that is strengthened by grace, that person is fully grateful, they are fully secure, and they are fully driven. That person is not easily shaken. That's why Paul starts there. Be strengthened. Everybody had left. Considering what he just told Timothy, that everyone had abandoned him, those words carry quite a bit of extra weight. Don't you leave me too, Timothy. Don't you run and hide like they did. Don't you leave the faith. Jesus didn't run. I didn't run. Look what I've been through. Don't you leave. You be strengthened, Timothy. When the going gets tough, you be strengthened by the grace of God that is in Jesus Christ. You be strengthened. Look to him for your strength. Look to him for your ability to carry on. So Paul starts there. He starts at be strengthened. Not, Not strengthen yourself. Be strengthened in Christ. He starts there. He doesn't stop there. He moves on. Okay? 
I got a little bit of time. Oh, I got to hurry. Verse 2, he tells Timothy, and he tells all of us, not just Timothy. Remember, he's talking to everybody. Everybody, he's talking to everybody. He says, entrust what you have learned to faithful people who can teach others. All right, what's that sound like? That's the second imperative. He says, make disciple makers, right? Not just make disciples, but make disciple makers. That's what he's saying. I love this. Boy, this is good. I love that. Jesus said, go and make disciples of every nation. So that is the commission for every disciple to go and make disciples of every nation. We must go and make disciples. So when I go and I make disciples, it now becomes the commission of those disciples to go and make more disciples. That's, that's multiplication. So basically, we aren't making disciples. What we're doing is making disciple makers, Amen. right? Amen. All right. I mean, that's a broad implication, and that applies to all of us. There's multiplication. There's a, there's a unique instruction here to Timothy There is a unique instruction here that because Timothy is a pastor, so he has a specific responsibility to raise up leaders who can do what he does and teach and preach the word. But for that matter, let me just put this out there. For that matter, you as disciple makers, you also have the same responsibility to shepherd others through the scripture so that they can do the same thing when the time comes, they can take others and shepherd them through the scriptures also. This is a good one. I worked on this one. The church is not an orphanage where you bring lost children and drop them off and let someone else take care of them. The church, if anything, is more akin to an adoption agency where you have found a lost child that you want to adopt and we will offer you support. That's how it works. You want to make it count? You want to live on purpose? Make disciple makers. Pour your life into someone, into multiple people, and watch it multiply. Watch it increase time over time again. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9 that God would multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest for righteousness. And finally, the final imperative that Paul gives here is in verse 3 where he says that we must share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one wants to talk about that. That's not a a topic that's preached from many churches. The theology of suffering. But we're called to do it. I do want to say a quick word about the soldier. Why the soldier? Soldiers on active duty, they expect hardship. They do not expect luxury or comfort. When you do battle on the front lines, you live in harsh conditions. Um, Damp weather or arid desert dry weather, it's never in between. (laughs) It's never comfortable. Bad food. 
You're tired. There's a little rest. You're not comfortable. The further away that we get from the front lines, our conditions improve greatly. The further away we are from the conflict, the things that we complain about become more and more trivial. The things that we get upset over. You know, we'll gripe about the steak being too tough. And when they're in the middle of warfare, they're just happy to get a chance to eat. We'll complain about the the bed being too soft. And they're happy to get a a wink of sleep, a chance to rest. It's the same thing for Christians who have determined to live their life on purpose, who have determined to make it count, to suffer like a Savior, to be obedient to God and place themselves on the front lines of spiritual warfare. We are called into this battle, to the front lines, not to the couch. Those Christians who are obedient and do this, they are in Satan's crosshairs. They're in the direct line of his attacks. They are laughed at and they are rejected. They are scoffed at. But you know what else? They also deny themselves. They take up their crosses. They die to their flesh daily. They go without many comforts in order to advance the kingdom of God just like soldiers do. They suffer like soldiers of Christ. That means living differently. That means living uh, strategically, living purposefully. But look what Paul said. It's interesting, his choice of words. He said, share in suffering. No one needs to endure the struggles and difficulties alone. That's why soldiers go in platoons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do they call them, Tommy? Companies? Squads? Platoons? That's why they go in groups. (laughs) You don't ever see soldiers alone. That's a bad thing. They They go together. We are the body of Christ for a reason. We are to join in each other's joys and hardships. That's that's one reason why it's so very important that we remain connected, that we come together. There's a whole lot to unpack here. And time is against me. I'm I'm a couple minutes over already. But Paul does offer his own explanations in verses 4 through 6. It's a brief explanation. And you have to remember... Paper and ink were precious commodities in in Paul's day, especially for someone in prison. He had to be succinct. He had to choose his words carefully. So he says in verse 4, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The one who enlisted him. Other, Other translations say commanding officer. 
that would make more sense in our understanding of military service since we don't really care about who enlists us. We, we care about who's in command. We want to please the commanding officer. But look at what he says. He says, no one, no soldier gets entangled. He's not, he's not saying that we dismiss ourselves from society. He's not saying that we remove ourselves from participation in government or civilian pursuits, but that we don't become entangled. The, the picture here is, think of a deer with his horns caught in a thicket. He's, 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 he, he can't get loose. He can't do what deer do. He's entangled, right? Oh, I'm going to say it. How many Christians have become entangled in the last year? And I'll just leave that there. Verses 5, he talks about the athlete who follows the rules. 6, he talks about the farmer who gets the first share of the crops. There's a whole lot of nuance to unpack there. He tells Timothy to think on these things. Think about this and God will reveal these things to you. And I challenge you to do the same thing. Think about this, but I'm going to give you a broad, a broad overview. I'm going to give you the broad perspective and say, he says all this in order to tell Timothy, hey, stay focused, be vigilant, stay on mission, live on purpose. Don't get distracted, Timothy. Don't just drift on by, Timothy. So many people just coast through life. They let life happen to them. And then one day they open up their eyes and they wonder where it all went. Where did the time go? And what do I do with it? What did I do with it? What did I do with what I had? And Paul is pleading and he's challenging Timothy. And he's challenging all of us to live on purpose. Make every minute count. But Paul's point isn't about trying to push some kind of feel-good or self-actualizing, live-your-best-life-now, selfish, garbage kind of a message. He ain't doing that. He tells us what it's all for, what it's all about. You know, why would anyone want to live with this kind of intensity and this kind of determination? Why would anyone go through the things that Paul has gone through and then call others to live the same kind of life with the same kind of prospects? Why would anyone suffer the way that you've suffered and then ask others to do the same thing knowing that they're going to go through that kind of horror and that kind of abuse that you just, why would you invite someone to join you in that? In fact, Paul knows it's going to be hard. He knows it's going to be difficult. In chapter 3, he said, indeed, those who desire a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Of this very letter, he tells Timothy, it's going to happen, buddy. Why would you go through all this, Paul? Why live so intensely and face so many challenges and spend? Why would we spend our lives pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and pouring out? Why would we do it? Amen. What's the point? It's not so we can feel better. And that's where he finally comes to it. And that's where we finally come to it. We finally, at the very end, I finally get to my text. Verse 10, and it, it almost, because when you consider everything going on, when you consider the context, you look, at, you look at what he says here. Oh, my goodness. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He sums it up. I did it for their sakes, Timothy. 
so that they could know the same Jesus that I know, so they could have the same glory that I have. I did it for their sakes. I did it all for their sakes. That's the whole point. That's what makes it all worth it. That is what makes it all count. We do everything on purpose. We do everything diligently. We make sure that we're living life with a purpose for their sakes. That's what it means to suffer like a Savior. Soldiers suffer out of a duty. Saviors suffer out of compassion. I'm not saying that we're saviors because there's only one and his name is Jesus. But we are called to take up our crosses and follow him. We're called to live compassionately and generously and sacrificially in his name. And that means pouring into others, pointing them to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that one, in that one sentence, I did it all for their sakes so that they might know, that they might obtain Paul begs the question of every last one of us, what would we do? What would we give up? What would we endure for their sakes? What would we endure for their sakes? People we don't even know. In church, that's the tip. That's the, that's the sharp, pointy tip of the gospel spear. Don't just live. Don't just let life go by. Live it on purpose. Let that rest. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus and I thank you for your word. I pray that we are challenged by it. I pray that um, we are moved by it and changed by it. And uh, God, I ask you that you help us to be disciple makers. Help us to make disciple makers, Lord. I pray that you keep us safe as we go our separate ways and bring us back in the appointed time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.